Section 8 of Wellington by George Hooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6. The Second Rescue of Portugal. The winter of 1808 and 9 was marked by a great calamity, but one which had its compensations. Sir John Moore, who drove into the heart of northern Spain at the head of a small army, was compelled to retreat before the overwhelming numbers and masterful combinations of Napoleon and died a hero's death at Coruña. Although he was not aided by the Spaniards, he saved the south of Spain for the moment from invasion and arrested the march of armies upon the weak British and Portuguese force left to guard the town and the harbor of Lisbon. King Joseph re-entered Madrid, the French armies were strongly posted from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic, from the Bay of Biscay to the Tagus. The fierce spirit of resistance was still unquenched, even by the smoking and exsanguined ruins of Saragossa, yet before the last British soldier had embarked from Coruña, or Saragossa had capitulated, Napoleon told his brother Jerome that the affairs of Spain were ended so liable are men of great genius to miscalculation he remained at valladolid until january seventeenth and then started for paris to enter on a fresh struggle with austria for which he had long been preparing what waters do they drink in vienna he ironically asked those of the danube or the river of lethe and again if the emperor of austria makes the least movement he will soon have ceased to reign the offence of Austria was that she would not be sufficiently submissive. She intrigued with England, as was natural. She raised a considerable army, and was resolved to fight once more, for she was not yet a vassal state. Nor can it be doubted that Napoleon resented symptoms of independence, which seemed likely to embarrass his projects in Spain as well as in Germany. In a few months, he wrote to the Saxon king in February, the matter will be decided, either by the disarming of Austria and the re-establishment of her army on a peace footing, or by war, which will be followed by the ruin of this grand and ancient monarchy. England would not make peace, he insisted, so long as she had the means of troubling the continent, and the continent will not be tranquil so long as Austria is in opposition to us. In this spirit he plunged into a carefully prepared war with Austria. His drafts of soldiers from Spain lessened the stress upon the peninsula, and he quitted that country never to return, although he retained a villa at Madrid for his use should he again cross the Pyrenees. He set out from Paris on April 14th, and on that day Sir Arthur Wellesley, driven back to Portsmouth by a tempest in the Channel, was waiting a fair wind to sail for Lisbon. Sir John Moore's campaign and its result perplexed the government, gave arms to the opposition which they freely used, and sobered the enthusiasm, but did not shake the resolution of the British people. If the ministers, burdened by an enormous task, appeared to shrink from the contest in the peninsula, their better judgment soon regained its ascendancy and perhaps it was Lord Castlereagh's confidence in Wellesley that produced this fortunate effect. Maturely reflecting on the facts, Sir Arthur drew up a memorandum in which he firmly maintained 
that whatever might be the issue of the conflict between napoleon and the spanish people portugal at least could be defended and portuguese troops raised and disciplined until they could face the french he stood alone or almost alone in looking on lisbon as the best base of operations while others preferred the apparent but delusive advantages of cadiz and gibraltar and his opinions were so clearly and cogently expounded that the cabinet yielded in the end and he was appointed to command the army if on arriving at lisbon he thought it expedient to do so the post was then held by sir john craddock and if he were found to be successfully engaged in the field sir arthur said he could not reconcile it to his feelings to supersede him and send him to gibraltar as governor he sailed on the sixteenth landed at lisbon on the twenty second and as no fresh incident had happened he relieved sir john and practically assumed command on april twenty fourth eighteen o nine then he began that series of operations which not only defended portugal but carried his flag from the rock of lisbon to the walls of toulouse the spirit of the nation rose at once when he appeared in the streets of lisbon and added tenfold to the moral force exerted on the side of the allies sir john craddock had maintained himself courageously with very small means when he was for weeks left without instructions of any kind and he took the prudent resolution of securing a feasible retreat by preparing a place of embarkation the defeat of moore an advance of soult to oporto the presence of victor on the tagus and the apathy of the portuguese were so many dangers which he confronted with manly constancy as time went on there were some alleviations more troops trickled in from england the portuguese regency offered the command of their army to a british officer they wished to have wellesley but he declined the post and it fell to beresford who had a talent for organization finally the french neither advanced across the tagus within the borders of portugal nor pushed on from the douro to lisbon but no one would set the military capacity of craddock in rivalry with that of wellesley and the government so fiercely assailed deserves at least the credit of selecting him soon after he landed the portuguese named him marshal-general which gave him a solid hold upon the troops and resources of the country so strong was their confidence a confidence which in a few weeks he justified abundantly it was five days after landing that he publicly notified his assumption of command and on may second he was in the field at the head of five and twenty thousand men nine thousand of whom were portuguese and thirty guns his first step was to organize his commissariat and assure the people that all provisions supplies and means of transport would be paid for his next to decide on the line of operations there were two enemies before him soult at a porto well within reach and victor remote yet more dangerous in appearance because he had a road to lisbon if he dared to follow it and the means if he thought fit to use them but victor was far up the tagus valley to fight him concert with the quarrelsome spanish chief cuesta was needed which would take time while soult lay close by held rich provinces and a great city he was cut off from victor by the mountains and the partisans and if the abler marshal could be defeated swiftly the other could be dealt with later wellesley therefore determined to organize a line of defence 
upon the right bank of the Tagus, sufficient to delay Victor if he came on, and with the main body to strike boldly at Oporto. There were other reasons for attacking Soult, for a French officer visited the camp and revealed the fact that he and several comrades wished to depose the marshal, who, having taken on himself the title of governor-general of Portugal, was called by the soldiers in derision Nicholas I. In that military conspiracy really directed against Napoleon, there was not much depth, but it indicated a loosening of the bonds of discipline and a species of disloyalty very discreditable to soldiers. Wellesley refused point-blank to regulate his operations by any such contrivances, and the officer returned across the Douro, where his machinations being discovered he was arrested but escaped. At his last visit to the British headquarters, Napier tells us, the traitor, by the orders of Sir Arthur, was conducted through by-paths so that he saw little, and thus when questioned by Soult, he led him to believe that the hostile army could not move for several days. All this told against Soult. He did not know that an army was close upon him at a moment when the disposition of his own troops favoured an attack. His main body was at a porto and on the Tomego, separated by the Doro from the infantry and horsemen under Mermet and Franceschi, who were posted between the Doro and the Vuga. Wellesley had his army at Coimbre on the Mondego, and his plan was to hold the French left in check with the Portuguese, supported by a British detachment under Beresford, and to surprise, if possible, and overwhelm the right, whose only line of retreat lay by the boat-bridge at Oporto. Beresford therefore marched east of the Sierra, in which the Vuga rises, and Wellesley on the 7th, with 16,000 men, moved along the high road between the sea and the hills, reaching the river on the ninth, the troops having halted one day to give Beresford time to arrive on the upper Douro. Franceschi, at Albergaria Nova, had no notion that an army was within a few miles of his camp, and the object was to surprise him. To effect this, Hill was sent in boats from Avairu to Ovar at the head of an inlet of the sea. Paget and Sherbrooke marched by a bridge over the Vuga, while Trant, commanding a Portuguese party, was pushed out to turn the French right, and Cotton, with the British horse, was directed on the left. Accidents thwarted the plan, Trant coming on an impassable ravine, and Cotton being misled by guides, so that on one flank Franceschi was not turned, and on the other Cotton came full on his horse and foot by day and had to halt. Even then the brilliant Italian did not know how large a force was near, but soon Wellesley came up and drove off the infantry, yet could not reach the horse, which adroitly withdrew at dark to Grijon. Here the French fought on the 11th for their line of retreat, but not long as their position was easily turned. Yet again they escaped the grasp of the assailant, and moving all day got safely over the Douro, for once more orders miscarried, and accidents occurred, so that the project of smashing the French right south of the Douro failed of its effect. Nevertheless, the surprise of Soult was complete, and he seems to have trusted to the unfordable Douro for such brief protection as would give him time to slip away. His intention was to retreat by Amarante into the Salamanca country, towards which he sent his heavy impedimenta, and he did not know that Beresford had driven Loison 
over the Tamega, and that his general, so hated by the Portuguese, had fallen back to Gimarais, leaving the allies in possession of the river passage. So he determined to defend the Douro, and not to march until the 13th. The wished-for delay was not granted to him by his adversary. Bringing the army up to the river early on the 12th, Wellesley eagerly sought the means of crossing. Opposite Aporto the stream flows round a high bluff, the Serra, which overhangs it like a bastion and bears or bore a convent. Under this, on the eastern face, the troops were collected, hidden by the mass from the city. From the summit Wellesley gazed on the deep broad river and the further bank, meditating how to secure the transit for his ardent and hardy soldiers. He quickly observed an isolated building in an enclosure on the opposite shore, having walls on three sides, open to the river on the fourth, and accessible from the city by one gate only. Could boats be obtained, Soult had drawn them all to the right bank, the troops sheltered by the bluff would be able for a time at least to pass unseen. Wellesley therefore sent General John Murray with the Germans up the river to Avintas to cross there, and planting a battery on the bluff sought for boats. By the aid of a Portuguese colonel, Waters found them. Three barges were got from the other side, and when he knew that Murray had also obtained some craft, Wellesley gave the signal for the troops to cross. That work was deftly done, and solid possession of the enclosure obtained before the French detected the movement. Then they dashed up, opened a heavy fire, and wounded General Paget, whose place was taken by Hill, but could make no impression in front, nor try the flanks, because Wellesley's guns swept the approaches. For some time three battalions stood alone beyond the river and sustained the furious assault. At last Murray was seen moving down the right bank. The townsfolk sent over boats to Sherbrooke's men at a point below the bluff, the uproar in the city indicated a retreat. The French were visibly marching toward Valanga under a heavy fire, and Sherbrooke at length over the river issued from the city and pressed on the rear. Murray did not attack or even fire as he should have done on the retiring columns, who were only molested by two squadrons of the 14th Light Dragoons, led by Brigadier Charles Stewart and Major Harvey. The passage of the Douro, a brilliant action in the face of an enemy cost the British twenty killed and ninety-six wounded. The French lost five hundred killed and wounded and five guns besides fifty without carriages found in the arsenal. Too much is often expected, not only from a general but from his soldiers, whom exacting censors should remember are also human beings. Wellesley halted one day at a porto, not only because he had to bring his baggage and stores over a wide stream, but because his men had marched eighty miles in four days. On the 14th he started for Braga, where he hoped to intercept Soult, who he heard had destroyed his guns and ammunition and crossed the hills towards Braga. That was true, but not all the truth. Finding to his dismay that Loison had abandoned Amarante, Soult on the 13th got rid of every encumbrance, and taking a mountain pathway up the course of a torrent by his quenchless energy, urged the wearied troops over the Sierra to Guimarães, where he had the good fortune to assemble the whole of his army. Then he destroyed the guns belonging to Loison and Lorge, and turning to the right once more plunged into the hills. He made for Montalegre on the road to Orense, outstripping pursuit, 
securing by daring efforts possession of two narrow bridges over the torrents in his way crossing montalegre on the seventeenth two days after filing over the frontier near alaritz and the next entering orense wellesley had failed to overtake any part of his fugitive force except a rear-guard and neither beresford nor the portuguese partisans had been able to cut him off he owed his escape entirely to himself he made his exit from portugal without a gun but he escaped a fate which at one moment seemed inevitable capitulation in the open field if his renown was not diminished how much that of his opponent was increased sir arthur landed at lisbon on april twenty second he began his forward march on may seventh and twelve days afterwards so resolute as well as swift were his movements not a single french soldier remained on the soil of portugal moreover soult had been driven into galicia and was separated by a wide interval from victor whose threatening position in the tagus valley ceased to be an immediate danger he was now the object of attack in the midst of the operations against soult the duke of belluno had made a show of passing the tagus at aliantara which led to the destruction of the bridge set general mackenzie in motion from abrantes and made wellesley when the intelligence reached him turn a part of his army southward but victor hearing of soult's defeat at once filed over the boat bridge at almaraz and took post at placencia on the alagon covering the road to madrid so that by the time wellesley's army had marched to abrantes the french in the tagus valley were reduced to the defensive there had been a brief period before victor's retreat when it seemed possible to strike him between the guadiana and the tagus but cuesta as usual was intractable nothing could be done and victor got away so arthur was about to have his first experience of spanish temper and spanish bad faith toward the end of june the various armies which exerted an influence upon the immediate field of action were spread over a wide extent of territory three french corps in the north the second fifth and sixth commanded by laborde mortier and ney had just been placed by napoleon under the command of soult as the senior officer with orders to act together only together and not in fractions they were to advance on the english pursue them without cessation beat them and fling them into the sea writing on june eleventh from schoenbrunn he said to his generals the english alone are redoubtable they alone if the army is not differently managed before the lapse of a few months they will bring upon it a catastrophe unfortunately ney and soult were bitter enemies and it was difficult to effect a hearty cooperation soult having designs against ciudad rodrigo moved on zamora calling up mortier and ney feeling that he was deserted abandoned galicia altogether and went to astorga reaching that town at the end of june two days later soult entered zamora the point to notice is that these corps more than fifty thousand strong were separated from the tagus valley only by the mountains of bahar about the same time king joseph and jourdain his adviser were in madrid sebastiani was watching the spanish general venegas who lurked in the sierra morena victor was at placencia facing cuesta who had come from the guadiana to the tagus 
and Wellesley was at Abrantes, striving to gain the assent of Cuesta to some reasonable plan. At length it was agreed that these two should effect a junction on the right bank, and that to aid this movement Venegas should advance across the upper Tagus and threaten Madrid. It was on June 27, 1809, that the British army, about 21,000 men and 30 guns, marched from Abrantes in two columns upon Castello Branco, where they merged in one, and headed for Placencia, which was reached on July 10th. That very day Wellesley went to Mirabete and had a long conference with Cuesta, which ended in some sort of agreement. The British commander was alive, yet not sufficiently alive to the danger which threatened from the side of Bihar, and sent Beresford to Perales. Cuesta grudgingly undertook to watch the pass of Banos, but only sent thither an inadequate force. Wellesley at this time, and even later, underrated the power which Soult might bring to bear, not knowing that he had so far recovered from his beating, and that he had three corps under his orders. He therefore persevered in the offensive, trusting overmuch to the Spaniards, whose troops, it turned out, would not stand fire, and whose junta fulfilled none of its promises to furnish transport and supplies. The advance from Abrantes, the approach of Cuesta to the Tagus at Almaraz, and the presence of Sir Robert Wilson's partisan corps near Madrid had induced Victor to retire, first to Talavera, and then behind the Alberche, where he was on June 28th, so that the junction of the British and Spanish armies was effected without molestation of any kind. Wellesley was at Oropesa on July 20th, and Cuesta in his front at Balara. But here new perils arose. The Spaniards who undertook to furnish food and transport had provided neither, and the army was already on half rations. The consequence was that Sir Arthur declared that he would not pass the Alberche, a threat he had to reiterate later, unless promises were redeemed and his wants were supplied. The threat produced no effect, and the safety of the Allied army depended upon fasting troops. Victor had now so posted his men that he covered the line of retreat upon Madrid through Toledo, which could not be assailed, and awaited the movements of the Allies with the more confidence because he learned their plans from his spies on Cuesta's staff. Rarely has any general been in a more embarrassing position than Sir Arthur at this moment, for when the fairest chances of overthrowing the French were presented, the Spaniards sulked, and when they were few or none, he was eager to fall on. Wellesley, for example, as early as July 22nd, rode over the river, and from the southern heights took a survey of the French position. He saw that it was pregnable and devised a plan, but Cuesta took to his bed, and the great opportunity was lost. Then, when Victor shifted his divisions a little to the rear, Cuesta followed on the 24th, but the French had gone out of reach. Two days later he got within their grasp, for he moved recklessly on, and when they turned upon him on the 26th, beyond the Alberche, he would have been cut to pieces at Alcabon had not Wellesley placed two divisions and some cavalry on the left of that stream, the sight of whom stopped the French. This offensive stroke, though not pushed home, implied that the enemy had recovered confidence. The reason was that Joseph, providing for the defense of Madrid and summoning Sebastiani from La Mancha, 
had marched out to join victor and did so on the twenty fifth behind the guadarama he had also through general foy given soult the permission he sought to advance by the pass of banos upon placentia and lead thither all his corps the peril which beset wellesley will now be understood he was far into spain acting beside it can hardly be said in concert with a most ill-conditioned and dangerous ally in his front everything that could be spared from madrid had been thrust into the valley a result rendered possible by the treachery of the junta which jealous of cuesta had ordered venegas not to push for the capital on his left rear but still north of the hills unknown to him were three french corps pointing to roads which cut in on his line of retreat as well as his flank and his army was half starved by the rulers of the people he was there to aid it was with the greatest difficulty that cuesta fresh from his risk at alcabon could be induced to cross the alberche and take post at talavera nor was he persuaded until he said he made the proud englishman go down on his knees wellesley then leaving a strong guard on the alberche made ready to fight a battle at talavera he had nominally fifty four thousand men and a hundred guns but only nineteen thousand trusty soldiers his british and germans the french came on with some fifty thousand veterans and eighty guns wellesley placed the spaniards on the right in the partially fortified town of talavera which was close to the river and his own brigades on the hills extending northward and ending in a loftier eminence overhanging a narrow valley beyond which were the mountains the troops from right to left were campbell's sherbrooke's and the german legion with donkin's brigade on the bluff which was the key of the position hill and the horse in the rear early on the morning of the twenty seventh mackenzie was still at the front when the french broke over the stream they surprised the british outposts bearing down with such speed that sir arthur was nearly captured he rode up from talavera at the first news says sir samford whittingham we advanced into the midst of our skirmishers the fire was hot and the enemy rapidly approaching sir arthur leaped off his horse and scrambled up the wall of an old ruin close at hand but he was obliged to throw himself down on his hands and knees and remount instantly for the enemy's sharpshooters had nearly surrounded the building and a minute's delay would have constituted him a prisoner the french were checked by the forty-fifth a stubborn old regiment some companies of the sixtieth and the personal efforts of the commander they lost some hundreds in the confusion but retreated nevertheless through the cork trees and olives to the position where mackenzie halted behind the centre this inauspicious beginning was followed by a stroke from victor which almost ruined his adversary while a feint by the french horse on the town side sent the spaniards flying by thousands and the peril was only averted by sir arthur who brought up some english horse and those spaniards who did not run victor appeared on the allied left and opened fire from his guns he saw that the great hill was imperfectly occupied and being familiar with the ground he knew the value of that post and tried to surprise and overwhelm its defenders just as the twilight was at hand he ordered ruffin with a whole division to storm in upon donkin's brigade for a moment the chance was in favour of the french they crowned the hill steep as it was for their numbers enabled them to turn the british brigade but just as they were exulting in success 
General Hill brought up the 29th foot, which charged home, and the intruders were roughly expelled. The 48th and a scratch battalion followed and were in time to break the force and finally rout a second French attack, made in the growing darkness with a larger force and pushed with great resolution. The left centre, German Legion, had also been assailed, and although the French were worsted, indeed lost a thousand men, they had tested the weakness as well as the strength of the line and were prepared for the trials of the morrow. It is a peculiarity of the conflict near Talavera that it was divided into several acts. The severe combat in the gloaming of the 27th was renewed at daybreak. Ruffin, supported by Villat, once more dashed forward, this time on a broad front which turned the shoulder of the hill. His march was covered by artillery fire, and his hardy men went on determined to win, but they were met with greater resolution by the soldiers of Donkin and Hill, who did not run when turned, and who finally prevailed, forcing their adversaries down the steeps with the loss of fifteen hundred men. Then the guns from the opposite hills renewed their tearing cannonade, and the wearied and shattered assailants regained their former lines. The desperate attack showed Wellesley that he must farther strengthen his left, which he did by placing Bascour's Spanish cavalry, begged from Cuesta beyond, and a body of horse, British and German, facing the valley. They were soon after joined by Albuquerque, who hated his own stupid commander. Now ensued a pause. The soldiers of both armies gathered on the banks of the rivulet in the ravine to drink, while the French generals held a council, when Jourdain urged the king to retire behind the Alberche and wait for Soult, who was coming south from Salamanca. He was to have been at Placencia on the 31st, but during the high debate, a letter from Soult showed that he could not be there until the 2nd or even the 5th of August. News also came in that Venegas had at length marched and had approached Toledo, and swayed by the fear of an attack on Madrid and Victor's eagerness to fight, the king rejected the prudent advice of Jourdan and allowed the battle to be renewed. At this time Wellesley, seated on the lofty hill, received through Duncan a message from Albuquerque to the effect that Cuesta was a traitor. He was intently watching the motions of his adversaries, and says Napier, he listened to this somewhat startling message without so much as turning his head, and then dryly answering, Very well, you may return to your brigade, continued his survey of the French. In after years Wellington did not remember the incident, and Lord Stanhope says he evidently did not believe a story which, if not vrai, is certainly vraisemblable. The stress of the battle was yet to come. It was resumed after midday and continued with great violence for more than five hours. Victor's plan was to turn the left and break in the centre. He directed Ruffin to turn the left by the valley, while half Villette's division went against the key hill, and Sebastiani's men fell on the troops between its summit and the Spaniards about Talavera. This latter body, preceded by a terrible fire from the French guns, dashed upon Campbell's division and fared ill for their fierce onset was met by a fiercer counterstroke, in which Mackenzie and some Spaniards joined, and the French were not only routed, but ten guns were captured, while an attempt to rally in the olive groves and charge again was quickly frustrated. Nor did better fortune befall the French right attack, for seeing the troops coming on, Wellesley sent against them Anson's cavalry. The German hussars were stopped by a deep chasm, 
but the twenty-third light dragoons came upon an easier passage and headed by john ellie and frederick ponsonby rode through villat's columns charged stolz's french horse brigade beyond the astonished infantry and were only beaten when exhausted they in turn were charged by polish lancers and german troopers drawn by victor from the reserve the heroic twenty-third lost colonel seymour and more than two hundred men and the survivors found shelter with Boscour spaniards but the audacious charge of the regiment was so impressive that it actually arrested the turning movement of ruffin up the valley the great hill was untouched and thence wellesley watched the eddying fight for the centre was again ravaged by cannon and assailed by infantry the storm this time fell on the germans and the guards they threw it back but the guards pursuing hotly were struck in front and flank and the french reserves pressing on the whole fell into confusion wellesley who saw the error of the pursuit sent down from his airy the forty-eighth foot under colonel donnellan and cotton's cavalry as he says without orders moved up they arrived just in time for the centre was broken donnellan led his infantry into the tumultuous throng which says napier seemed sufficient to carry it away bodily but wheeling back by companies that regiment let the crowds pass through and then resuming its proud and beautiful line fell on the flank of the victorious french column plying them with such a destructive musketry and closing up on them with such a firm and regular step that their offensive movement was checked the broken troops reformed cotton's light cavalry two squadrons only charged the guns did their work and the centre was once more solid and impenetrable no fresh attempt was made by the french who worsted at all points drew off under the protection of their batteries and light troops the sanguinary battle was won the british loss in the several actions was more than six thousand and that of the french two generals and upwards of seven thousand two british generals langworth and mackenzie were killed and three were wounded ten guns were captured in the fight and seven more were found in the woods the next day when victor retired over the alberche talavera must rank with the great actions recorded in british annals because compared with their assailants the real defenders of the position were so few and made good the deficiency by freely sacrificing their lives it is an example of tenacity the only misfortune of the day arose when the valour of the guards got the better of their discretion but it was a general's as well as a soldier's battle for the watchful commander was the soul of the fight some have pretended that after all it was a french victory napoleon if his testimony be needed may be allowed to decide that question writing from schoenbrunn august twenty fifth he says tell the king that i see with pain how he calls his soldiers conquerors and that the fact is i have lost the battle of talavera publicly he held another language but privately he spoke the truth foiled on the field and fearing that venegas on one side and wilson on the other might reach madrid king joseph marched away on the twenty ninth to save the capital victor remained in the valley alert and ready to retire at the first sign of danger and a fine reinforcement reached the british army general robert crawford leading the fifty-second the forty-third and the ninety-fifth the nucleus of the coming light division passed over the battlefield and took outpost duty having marched in a july heat sixty-two miles in twenty-six hours
one peril had been averted another was close at hand on the very day of the battle soult began his advance upon placentia and as the spaniards fled from banos without firing a shot the leading columns of the fifth corps entered the town on the thirty-first wellesley heard of soult's march on the day before and a little later that he was in the valley leaving cuesta in talavera to protect and send away the wounded he set out himself with his own army to combat the french marshal not knowing even then that three corps were moving through the hills cuesta was better informed but concealed his knowledge and it was only when the british chief reached oropesa on august third that he discovered how great was the risk he ran for he acquired the knowledge that fifty thousand frenchmen were pressing forward that soult's dragoons were over the titar not far from the bridge at almaraz and that cuesta had determined to quit talavera at once and abandon the hospitals full of sick and wounded the crisis was sharp but sir arthur cool and quiet took an instant decision the don now wanted to fight at oropesa which must have been ruinous especially as his army was not strong in battle and as he would not stir at daybreak on the fourth the british army alone filed over the bridge at arzobispo and gained the col de Mirabete, which ensured a line of retreat to barajos crawford's active light brigade at the same time passed the rugged hills on the left bank and stood on the fifth masters of the bridge of almaraz rapid movements which foiled soult and made all secure cuesta also managed to pass the river yet had a narrow escape and two days afterwards his post on the tagus was surprised and his army in flight to de Lestosa. there was no end to the embarrassment caused by this incapable and crabbed officer and had not wellesley interfered he would have done more mischief and lost half his guns by august eleventh the allies were in line once more and the next day cuesta resigned his place being taken by aguia in the enemy's camps the old discord broke out between ney and soult and the several corps soon separated one remaining at placentia and another at talavera while ney went to valladolid beating wilson on the way and victor joined the king napoleon in austria was enraged at the whole series of operations he condemned soult's march on placentia and insisted fiercely that the corps in the north should have joined the king through madrid and have operated in a mass the only road to success he said in a country where lines of communication are insecure he wrote thus to clark from schoenbrunn august fifteenth the plan of directing marshal soult on placentia is faulty and contrary to all rule it has every inconvenience and no advantage number one the english army can pass the tagus support itself upon barajos and from that moment has no fear of marshal soult number two it may beat both armies in detail if on the contrary soult and mortier had moved on madrid they would have been there by the thirtieth and the army united by august fifteenth could have given battle and conquered spain and portugal sir arthur justified the foresight of napoleon to the letter he not only crossed the tagus but when the conduct of the spanish junta could no longer be borne their soldiers plundered his baggage and even fired on his foragers while they withheld supplies and transport he fell back to the neighbourhood of barajos whence he had secure communications with lisbon his brother lord wellesley was now ambassador at seville 
but his great influence was exerted in vain. I am worked like a galley slave, he writes, and can effect nothing. And Sir Arthur, now Viscount Wellington and Baron Dordal, surveying the whole position of affairs and seeing into the heart of them as clearly as Napoleon, resolved to trust in future to his own resources and hold fast by his great original idea of defending the peninsula in Portugal with his British troops and growing Portuguese army. The Seville Junta gave him the title of Captain-General, which he accepted, but with his marked disinterestedness, vindicating as he had done before in Portugal his brother Henry's words about his indifference to money, he refused the pay the rank conferred, just as later, when they gave him an estate, he paid the rents into the treasury during the war. At home the Portland government had been broken up, Canning and Castlereagh had fought a duel, the public mind was seething with rage over the Walcheren failure, which might have been a success, and the scandals affecting the Duke of York. Wellington, who did not escape the insults of faction and the wrath of ignorance, remained unmoved and unremittingly walked in the path of his duty, supported faithfully by Lord Liverpool, who succeeded Castlereagh as Minister of War. End of Section 8